0: Good morning. Good morning. Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Only what is it? 6 more days until Christmas. How are you holding up? <laughs> you guys sound tired. <laughs> yeah, you guys are laughing back here, right? How are you holding up, okay? Yeah, okay. It's it's wearying the Christmas season, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know, but everybody I talk to, it's like, yeah, I mean, the song comes on, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Thank you. (laughs) Extra red envelope for that gentleman over there. And, you know, I hear the song, and it is the most wonderful time of the year, but my goodness, so much anxiety, so much stress, and, you know care over good things, finding the right gift for someone that you love, uh, planning uh, parties, uh, just all the hustle and bustle and and, and all of it, but uh, it's ironic, isn't it, that this time of year, which is the most wonderful time of the year, it's ironic that it can be and is for many often the most stressful, anxiety-ridden tension-filled time of the year, too, and ironic because it celebrates the one who came, as we read, the one who came whose law is love and whose good news is shalom, peace. So if you're feeling the weight of the hustle and bustle around Christmas, you've got a few days left. Maybe, like me, you need to make sure that you're spending enough devotional time alone with God and centering again on that baby in the manger and remembering the reason for the season, that it is Jesus and it is that he comes to bring peace. So hang in there and find your peace and strength in God. One reason... In fact, the reason that Christmas is indeed Merry, and we can say Merry Christmas, it's seen in the promise of Christmas given to a Mary. Ha ha ha. That's about as good as it gets, so. (laughs) And the promise is the one given to Mary by the angel Gabriel. His promise that Mary, there is nothing that is impossible with God. And we're reminded each year, I think, especially at Christmas, when we look again at the Son of God and the Son of Man lying in a manger. We're reminded when we look again at the virgin birth, when we look again at a Savior who is fully God and fully human, we're indeed reminded that there is nothing that is impossible With God, no, not even a virgin birth, not even a Savior born both fully God and fully human, not even a Savior come to save the world, and, as we'll see this morning, no, not even something Jesus calls the sign of Jonah is impossible with God. As I look around the room this morning, I see the sign of Jonah Everywhere. Yes, even the prophet Jonah belongs at Christmas. Not just because he was swallowed by a big fish and a fish is one symbol of Christians. There's no relationship between the two if you're thinking there is. Don't research, I did it for you. No relationship. But there is something about Jonah, there is something about Jonah that's important for us in the church especially to remember at Christmas something impossible without God. What is this impossible sign of Jonah that Jesus talks about? Well, Jesus references the sign of Jonah twice, twice in the Gospel of Matthew and once in Luke. You can see those references to what scriptures. He references it on the screen. And he mentions the sign of Jonah each time in response to the religious leaders in Israel asking him for a sign proving or showing that God is really with Jesus. We need a sign that God is giving Jesus his support, the approval, the backing of God himself, the religious leaders say. They want a sign From heaven, it says in Matthew 16. Meaning they want a sign showing that Jesus is actually acting with God's approval. And in all three passages, Jesus responds to their request for a sign in a very curious way. All three times, his response is, no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah say, "Wow, what a curious thing for Jesus to say. I mean, after all, there were many signs that God was with him. All those prophecies fulfilled and the miracles that Jesus performed. And Jesus pushes through all of those however powerful signs and he highlights this sign of Jonah as the sign that he gives to a wicked generation where sin is still present in the world, whether then or now. The sign of Jonah is the sign that Jesus is of God. And for Jesus to highlight the sign of Jonah in such a way, well, there must be something special about that sign in particular, something fantastic. Well, what is this sign of Jonah? Well, in Matthew 12, there's a hint, at least. There's part of the answer. Jesus says in Matthew 12, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, and then he says this, for as Jonah was three days in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so it would seem that Jesus' death and resurrection certainly are included in this sign of Jonah. And that makes sense, right? What a powerful sign that God is behind Jesus and all that Jesus says and does and is. What a powerful sign—the death and resurrection. Jesus suffers and dies for the sins of the world, and then he comes back from from the dead. That's a pretty impressive sign that God is with Jesus. Just try doing it on your own sometime without Jesus and see, or without God, and see what happens. Right. There's a sign that God is with Jesus. He dies and comes back from the dead. But is there more? Is there more to the sign of Jonah than only Jesus' death and resurrection three days later? It seems there is more. For one, neither of the other two references to the sign of Jonah even mention Jonah in the belly of the fish or the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. No direct correlation to Jesus' death and resurrection is mentioned in either Matthew 16 or in Luke 11, a different gospel. Well, that's interesting. Is there something else that we need to understand about this sign of Jonah? Well, to better understand the sign of Jonah, maybe it would be prudent to take a look at the prophet Jonah and try to understand him better before we take an educated guess at what Jesus means by a sign named after Jonah. Let's understand the prophet before we try and understand his sign. First of all, in talking about Jonah, when we say Jonah, or we think Jonah, we might well think angry. Because the prophet Jonah is angry. In fact, His angry, rebellious attitude really is a thread that runs through that whole short book. It dominates the book even. He's angry that he has to go to Nineveh, so he tries to run away. After being swallowed by a huge fish, he finds humility for a time. Being swallowed by a huge fish will do that to you. Help you find humility. It will certainly get your attention. But three days later, the fish spits him out on the beach, spits him out on the right path, and Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, avoiding fish and large bodies of water on the rest of the way, I'm sure. And he preaches what has to be one of the shortest sermons in the history of the church. Here's Jonah's sermon, and I'll paraphrase. Hey, Nineveh, Nineveh, in 40 days, you're all going to die. Amen. <laughs> Can you imagine such a sermon? What if I came out here and did that? You know, this close. If we were studying the book of Jonah, I might try this. Can you imagine if I came out here and I said, Hello, people of God. I wouldn't even say hello, and they weren't even people of God. If I just came out here to any crowd, any crowd, And I said, in 40 days, you're going to die. Jonah doesn't even tell him what God he represents. Maybe they recognize him as a Jew by his dress. I I, I don't know. And he leaves no room at all for repentance, does he? He's back to his angry self. I mean, not only is that sermon short, sounds a little terse, doesn't it? A little angry? No room for repentance. Doesn't even mention it. Bible says he barely makes it into the city. You know, you get the feel that he's going there now because, you know, he's got fish on his brain. It's like, well, okay, that didn't work. All right, I'll go to Nineveh. It says he. first day he started into the city. You're all going to die. Forty days left. There, went to Nineveh. It sounds angry, doesn't it? Then he's back to his angry self as he watches in vain for God's fireworks to rain down on the Gentiles, those non-Jews of Nineveh. And then Jonah gets even angrier. When a worm shows up and gnaws and kills the plant, he's using for shade while waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed, sipping on his iced beverage, probably. Like on top of everything else, he needs that worm. So when we think Jonah, we might well think, ooh, he's an angry prophet. Superficially, we might explain Jonah's anger. Didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't enjoy preaching one thing, destruction, And finding God doing the opposite, sparing the city. And he didn't like the hot sun beating down on his head, only he made him more angry. And any one of those things might make any person angry. In fact, he gets so furious, the Bible says, he just wants to die. He's that upset. But if we look below the surface of of Jonah's anger, is there something more that we can discover there? Something underlying his anger, something in particular that's gnawing at Joseph, just like that worm did on his shady plant. I'd suggest that Jonah's anger rests on the fact that Jonah was a prophet of, to, and for Israel, the covenant people of God, the insiders. Jonah was a home-born Jewish prophet, got to hang out with Hosea and Amos. And he was commissioned to preach to Israel when Jeroboam II was king during a time of great prosperity in Israel. Not because Israel was righteous. In fact, they were terribly disobedient during that time. But nevertheless, by the grace of God, despite their disobedience, enjoying a huge time of prosperity during the time of Jonah. So Jonah had the delightful task of pleading with a very wealthy Israel to remember the covenant with God, urging them to return to the Lord, forsake their idols, and humble herself before God. But Israel refused to listen. So when God came and asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, I think he was already angry, or at least on his way there. It's no fun. It's no fun when no one listens to something pressing that you have to say, is it? And so Jonah's response to God telling him to go to Nineveh had to be something like, Say what? You've got to be kidding me, God. Nineveh? The Assyrians? Those Gentiles? Those dirty, rotten sinners? I can't even get Israel to listen. What chance am I going to have with Gentiles? Thanks a lot. No wonder he's frustrated and angry. But God says, Go. My word is for the Gentiles too. And I'm going to convince you of this, Jonah, for all Israel in the world to see. Even if I have to pursue you with wind and wave to the ends of the earth, even if I have to send a great fish to suck you up off the bottom of the ocean, Jonah, I need you to see. I need my people to see, the insiders to see, the righteous children of God to see who have fallen away, I need them to see that I am not only about redeeming Israel, but I'm also about redeeming all the nations and blessing all of them, just like I promised Abraham. And so Jonah preaches his sermon. He leaves the city, puts up his little booth, camps out to wait for the fire and brimstone show. Maybe he's thinking, that'll satisfy my anger, make me feel better when they get theirs. In the spirit of the annual countdown to Christmas, we might imagine Jonah counting down the 40 shopping days left in Nineveh until she's destroyed. 40, 39, 38, 37, 36, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then day 40 dawns. And no fiery spectacular, no great balls of fire, no claps of thunder and destruction, no smoke and sulfur, nothing. And Jonah's pent-up anger is released. He's preached repentance to Israel, and they don't repent. And now he's preached destruction to Nineveh, and no one's destroyed. He's probably starting to get a complex. Am I the worst prophet ever? And right there, in the middle of the Hebrew Scriptures, in a book that has scholars scratching their head wondering what it's even doing in the canon because it has nothing to do with Israel, or so they say. Right there in the middle of the Hebrew Scriptures is the book of Jonah showing even then God's heart for all nations that while Israel refused to repent, Gentiles believe. Now hey, I wonder if that has something to do with the sign of Jonah. While Israel refuses to repent, while the insiders refuse to do what God has asked of them, others believe and do it. Hmm. Back to Jesus. Consider the following parallels. Jonah was a preacher of repentance, saved from certain death and resurrected in a way after three days in the belly of a fish, Jonah then brought God's message to Nineveh, Gentiles, and they believe. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus preached repentance to Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew says, summarizes Jesus' message. But Israel's leadership refused to listen. Listen. And Jesus was delivered to death three days in the belly of the earth and then comes back from the dead. He then commissions his representatives to go out to the Gentiles and command people everywhere to repent and believe. And just like Nineveh, the Gentiles believe. And so Jesus tells the reluctant insiders, he tells them the sign of Jonah is the sign that God is with me. What sign? Sure, his death and resurrection three days later. But for what purpose? So that all the world, including Gentiles, might join in the kingdom of God too. The sign of Jonah is that all nations, the Gentiles, believe. Some have suggested that Jesus' first and last use of the sign of Jonah in Matthew, that Matthew sets it up that way to form something called an inclusio. That's a fancy theological term for sandwich. Jesus first mentions the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. Then he mentions it again in Matthew 16. And in between those two uses of the sign of Jonah is the sandwich. Jewish writers would do use this literary device to bring special attention to the stuff in the middle, the stuff in the sandwich. And in those sandwiched chapters in Matthew, there's growing opposition to Jesus from the insiders, from Israel's leaders. First, he's opposed by people of his own town in Matthew 13. Then by Herod, who kills John the Baptist in Matthew 14. And some Pharisees and scribes get after Jesus in Matthew 15. And finally, in chapter 16, the opposition to Jesus even causes the Pharisees and Sadducees to combine forces, which is amazing because they hated each other. And in the middle of all that, right in the middle, Matthew includes a very short and very curious story about Jesus withdrawing from the insiders. And he withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he casts a demon out of a Canaanite Gentile girl. Hmm. Jesus mentions the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. Next we read about mounting opposition from Israel. And then a Gentile Canaanite woman of all people puts her faith in Jesus. And then Jesus mentions the sign of Jonah again. Could the sign of Jonah have something to do with the fact that Gentiles are believing When Israel's leadership, these insiders, are not doing what God has asked of them. Including, perhaps, ironically, Jonah. Whose ministry and prophetic mission was one of repentance. And only has words of judgment when he speaks to Nineveh. And God makes it happen anyway. Despite Jonah's reluctance. I think that's exactly what Jesus means by the sign of Jonah. Like Jonah, Jesus is saying, I will be vindicated in my death and and resurrection when the whole world, including Gentiles, believes. And all around them, Gentiles were beginning to believe And even more so when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels some 30 years later. And even more so some 2,000 years later today. That's the sign of Jonah. Despite opposition from even insiders or religious leaders who aren't doing what God has asked them to do and who should know better, Gentiles are believing. Israel in Jonah's day certainly didn't like it, and neither did Israel's leaders in Jesus' day. But the sign that Jesus is who he says he is is that Gentiles believe in his death and resurrection. Now, what does that mean for us today? Maybe it means several things, but I have two I'd like to highlight with us in the time we have left. First, are we at all like Israel sometimes, reluctant to let the dirty, rotten sinners into God's family to welcome them home? Do we sometimes forget that we're dirty, rotten sinners too? Here, only by God's grace, are we at risk, like Israel's leadership in her prosperity and blessing from God, of pulling back from the radical obedience of love that God calls for? Are we at the same risk of missing Jesus' radical message of reaching everyone in love? Do we get caught like Jonah, who perhaps hoped and prayed more for the enemy's destruction than for their repentance and love? And when we do, if we do, God's response to us is always the same. It's, hey, I love them too. In fact, that's why I came. To offer them a way out, a way home, to show them what love means. Won't you help me? One of the things that I appreciate most about West Bowles is our intentional effort to include everyone in those we choose to love. For example, even kids who don't know the Lord yet, who haven't said the prayer of asking Jesus into their heart, who maybe are struggling with taking Him very seriously yet, They've always been more than welcome, and they need to continue to feel more than welcome to participate in our youth groups and to be here. We don't screen them out, and we don't scare them away, we try not to. Instead, we try and make God's house and his community an inviting place of love, an inviting place to be. And over the result and over the years, the result, the overall result is kids believe And kids find God, and their relationship with him deepens. Now, is that a risky approach? Probably. But is it worth the risk? In my opinion, without question. Without question. Because the sign of Jonah, the sign that Jesus is who he says he is, is when Gentiles believe. And other ministries represented here this morning, I know, also welcome those and serve those who might not know God yet, who haven't yet experienced his or anyone else's love, for that matter. And you know, if you're involved in any ministry here at West Bowles Community Church, as you make your plans for 2011, would you accept a challenge? Ask. Ask what your ministry is doing specifically to reach out in love to those who might not know God yet. How will you show them love in 2011? What loving things will you do for them? Now, well, Make sure your 2011 plans include something to love them, something over and above and beyond our own Christian fellowship and the deepening of our own faith. Will you accept that challenge? First, what does the sign of Jonah mean for us today? It means that whenever we start getting the feeling that we're the insiders and we start to be proud of that, and it's us versus them, we better watch out. We better watch out. Because it may be that Jesus is looking at us like he looked at those Pharisees and Sadducees. And he sees in us as insiders a reluctance to really and truly love those who don't know the Lord. Second, and this one just floors me every time because it's just ridiculous. What does the sign of Jonah mean for us today? This is impossible. If the sign of Jonah includes this idea that Gentiles believe then what does that mean about us, at least those of us who are Gentiles here this morning? I think is almost all of us. If Gentiles believing in Jesus is the sign of Jonah, well, then who is the sign of Jonah? Say it louder, Joey. We are the sign of Jonah. Have you ever thought of that? If believing Gentiles is the sign of Jonah, that that means we're the sign of Jonah. And as the sign of Jonah, we're the proof that Jesus has the approval, the support, the backing of God. We are. We're that special, fascinating sign that Jesus singles out, that shows the world he is the way, the truth, and the life, that shows the world that God is love, We're the ones showing the world that God is indeed love, or we should be. How are we doing? We're the sign of Jonah, and what an honor. How incredibly humbling that God, the almighty God of the universe, would choose us to show the world what he is like. We get to be the proof that Jesus is who he says he is our belief, our trust, our obedience, all of which is to say our love of God and others is God's method, God's means, God's plan to reach the world, fellow signs of Jonah. And by the way, if you're Jewish and listening this morning, you're not left out of the sign of Jonah party. It isn't just for Gentiles. In fact, some ways it's even more powerful in the lives of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ You know, right after Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, the final time in Matthew, guess what the next story is? The next story is Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he turns to the disciples and asks them, who do you say that I am? And we get Peter's famous confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And do you remember Jesus' response to Peter? Ah, Do you remember? I picture Jesus turning to look at Peter, this bold, courageous young fisherman who dares to dabble in the abyss of the sea. And I picture Jesus, maybe with tears in his eyes, turning to Peter at his confession, his stunning confession of who he is. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. First of all, what an incredible coincidence that Peter's dad's name was Jonah. And God loves to use coincidences, doesn't he? Did you know... Why do you suppose Jesus includes Peter's father's name when he addresses him? Did you know it's the only time in all the Gospels, in fact, all the Bible, that Peter is ever addressed as son of Jonah? The only time. And it comes right on the heels of Jesus just talking about the sign of Jonah in the very same chapter in Matthew 16. I think Jesus is overwhelmed that this Jewish young man despite his heritage, despite where the insider tract has gone in terms of what it means to love God, despite it all, this son of Jonah proclaims and believes in him, even though he's seen Jesus go and help and be with and love and touch and get after and love and just welcome Gentiles. He nevertheless says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Oh, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And maybe, just maybe, maybe a little warning for Peter in the sides of Jesus' eyes. Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Maybe, okay, Peter, you're on the right track here, but stay on it. Maybe a little warning For this son of Jonah, literally and figuratively, Peter, be careful, don't go. Don't you go down that road of reluctance when it comes to welcoming Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Something we know that Peter struggled with in the years that followed, didn't he? So whether Jew or Gentile this morning, the sign of Jonah is when people believe. And by the way, in a word, People believe when they live out Shema. <laughs> you just knew I was going to end the year on Shema by now, didn't you? And there's that greatest commandment and the second like it again. Here it is again. And of course it's there because Jesus said all Scripture is based on it. So we can't read anywhere in here and not find it. So I'm trying to prove it to you, I guess. Here it is again. Jesus' summary of all of Scripture again. When people love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their might, when that characterizes their lives, so help them God. When people love their neighbor as themselves, that's the proof. That's the apologetic argument. That's the evidence that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Apologetic argument has its place. Great theological debate has its place. I understand that. We should all be able to make our case for Christ that reaches the brain. But the sign of Jonah is when Gentiles believe. What does that mean? When people believe, when they trust, when they put their faith in. Well, what do we do to believe and trust and put our faith in you, Jesus? So glad you asked. Here's what all of Scripture has to say about it, bottom line. Love! Well, are you sure about that? Because you know what it says here that. You know, that the Trinity is, uh, you know, that Trinity thing is like, uh, well, what do you believe about the Trinity? Well, I'm not so sure about it. Well, maybe you better go to the church down the road. What do you think about women in leadership? Well, I don't know. You know, Timothy, there's some tough stuff in there, and I'm not sure. What do you think about it? Well, you know, I think that, well, you know, we don't believe that way. Maybe you better go to the church down the road. Love! That's the whole scroll on what it means to follow Jesus. Love! Trust God with the rest. Just love them! Jesus says to the leadership who are struggling and always muttering as Jesus is hanging out with the riffraff, those insiders and gotten to them and puffed them up and well, look at us. And Jesus goes, ah. "Come on, guys, join the party." Love as we get nearer to two thousand eleven. That's awkward. Twenty eleven. Are we going to all go with twenty eleven? Okay, I'm going with 2011. As we get near to 2011, hey, church, let's resolve once again to do that in the coming year, shall we? Love. (laughs) Let's let's be the sign of Jonah that God calls us to be, and that may seem impossible because you go, oh, the world is full of chaos. It is, and the devil, he's at it all over the place. He is. It's like, oh, that's so daunting. And so it's very tempting to retreat and to take comfort in our insider status and close the doors of the church and treat it like a fortress. And all right, Bessie, hang on to this thing while we're going down. Just got to grin and bear it until we're raptured away, and then it'll be someone else's problem as the whole world goes to hell. scary. I know. and I don't mean to make fun of it. Well, I mean to make fun of it a little, but there's some real evil out there, and it's chaos, and it's scary, and it's daunting, and it, it's real tempting not to trust the love thing. It's like, that's impossible. How am I going to change the nonsense that goes on in Vegas, the nonsense that goes on in whatever culture? How am I going to change all the How am I gonna, that's impossible. It's too big. And then when we add to it, when we add to it, when we're dealing with our own mess, our own imperfections, our own low self-esteem, our own struggle and wrestling with sin that we all know very well is always right there, how on earth can we be the sign of Jonah to reach the world when we're so weak and we're not perfect? Oy, the enemy is so strong. It's impossible. And I am so weak. It's impossible. But Mary, Gabriel says, there is nothing that is impossible with God. And with God's help in our weakness, in our imperfection, he's strong. Yeah, the enemy's strong, but God is stronger. And God is never more evident to others when the lives of God's people are characterized first and foremost by an all-out love for God, an all-out obedience, and that our love for God is first and foremost characterized by an all-out love for others, a love that at least equals the love that we have for ourselves. And a love that includes more than simply telling them the truth. Oh, it includes that. Sometimes I think we get off easy. As long as we proclaim the gospel, as long as we simply tell them the truth, that's the whole scroll on what it means to love. Wow. So if I only tell my children what it is that they're to do, I have satisfied completely what it means to love them. Tell them, but don't limit love to word only. When we strive for that kind of love of God and others, then we're indeed the sign of Jonah. Our faithfulness and love is the sign that Jesus is the one sent into the world to redeem all who would believe in him. The virgin birth is not impossible. Jesus' full humanity is not impossible. Neither is his full divinity. And our participation with God to actually and for real with the help of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit impact the world, rock the devil's stronghold, impact the world for Jesus, that's not impossible either because Mary, there's nothing that's impossible with God. Someone say amen. Just please. Okay, thank you. The angels, the angels come to the shepherds and tell them, This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. If those same angels came into the world today, they should be able to point to the church while they go to the world, go to the world and point to the church, point to the community of God's people and tell the world, and this will be a sign unto you, world, them! Are we ready for that kind of attention and recognition and partnership with God? Where are the sign of Jonah? When we believe. You say, oh, that's impossible, but nothing's impossible with God. Will we lay hold again this Christmas of that promise of Christmas that nothing is impossible with God? Even our mission to the world, to reach the world with the love of God Trusting that when we love them, God will reach them. Even our mission to be the sign of Jonah. Let's be the sign of Jonah, shall we? As we gather around the manger once again in a few days, I hope you'll all come Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock to do just that with us. It's exactly what we're doing Christmas Eve. As we gather around the manger once again, and we see God's love in the gift of Jesus... Let's resolve again. Let's renew. Let's redouble. Let's re up our commitment to loving God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might, and to love our neighbor, to love everyone, even the Ninevites, those dirty, rotten sinners, to love them as ourselves. Shall we? Oh, let's do it, Church of God. So help us, God. Are you in? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to partner with you in reaching the world for your son. Help us, Father. Help us, Father, to fulfill our role as the sign of Jonah. Help us, Father, to avoid that reluctance that comes in especially loving those who would hurt us or harm us. Help us, Father, to just trust that reaching out in love rather than reluctance, is the sign to the whole world, whether to them directly or to whether the people watching our behavior, that when they see love, that's how they know. When they see love in the followers of Jesus, a love that surpasses anyone else's love, when they see that, God, when they see us partnering with you in loving people, they'll know that Jesus is, Is Lord. Give us the humility, the brokenness. Forgive us when we become insiders when we don't even realize it. Help us push against this us versus them that has built up often in the church. Help us, Father beginning here in this local church, in this community, that when people around us, when people think of West Bulls Community Church, the first mind is, oh, boy, those people there, that's the church. Let me tell you how they helped me when I needed it, and I didn't even go there. Oh, Father, help us to indeed show that you are love. Thanks. Thanks for the privilege it is to be your sign, to be the sign that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, to be the sign of Jonah. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction, his good words today from the book of Colossians. Paul writes these words to Colossa, and they're also for us today, too. One of my favorite verses, because the first part, think to yourself as you hear the first part, Colossae, the industry of the town, was they made clothes. They manufactured clothes. So here's Paul's words to them and to us. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, grace, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, over them all, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas. We'll see you Friday, Friday at 5. God bless you all.